This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. Oh, and it is a hot topic today for our hot question of the day. It has to do with real estate, right? We always joke that around here, there's two things that you can never get tired of talking about, real estate and weather. Well, today it's definitely the real estate question. There is this analysis, this report that has been done that says the value of Metro Vancouver real estate in particular has fallen by $89 billion in the past year. And again, I'm going to emphasize that's on paper. Okay, that is equity that has been lost in people's homes. A house that might have been worth, you know, three and a half million dollars a year ago, now worth more like 2.8. So it's calculating that paper loss. Now, there are some concerns, obviously, for retirees and recent home buyers who could be hurt by this. If you bought in the last five years, yeah, that's definitely affecting your home price. If you've owned longer than that, well, this is probably just one of a roller coaster wave that you're going to ride when it comes to real estate. But we're asking you for our hot question of the day today. Are you glad about this or not? Like, are you glad to see house prices falling? Do you think, yeah, this market needs some correction? Or are you on the other side of this where you say, no, this is going to hurt people and it is, it's, it's bad uh, to see prices fall by that much? So where do you come down on this? Now, you can vote in our hot question of the day if you go online to simisarah980 or at CKNW on Twitter and cast your vote there for this. You can also email me, simi at cknw.com. Use our buzz line, 604-331-BUZZ. We're actually going to give you a chance to call in on this uh, coming up in the next half hour because we are going to be delving a little more into this topic. Uh, I'd be curious to know how much the value of your home, if you have one, has gone down in the last year. Mine, over the last two years, has gone down probably 20%, maybe more between 20 and 25%. That's how much the value of my house has has gone down during that time. What about you? Uh, We're going to be talking about this. Is this a good thing? Or do you think, have we reached the point now where we've got to level off? This is going to start to hurt people. Well, let's talk about the value of real estate in Metro Vancouver. We're talking Metro Vancouver because, you know, in BC, that's really where it seemed like the biggest part of the bubble was. Uh, Over the last five years, we watched prices just kind of go through the roof. And now we see prices stubbornly trying to come back down, but they still seem a little stuck. That seems that disconnect, right, between sellers and buyers in the market. But now there's new research from a local property tax appraisal firm that is trying to put a number on just how much equity has been lost in our region in the last couple of years. The figure they came up with, $90 billion across Metro Vancouver. I know, that's huge. In the city of Vancouver, they found the average drop in equity in dwellings here is about $150,000 per household. But in West Vancouver, it's more like $450,000 per household. So, Is this a welcome correction in the market or is it happening too fast? Are people going to get hurt by this? We are going to talk more about these numbers and where they came from with the help of Paul Sullivan, who's a property tax agent and senior partner with Burgess, Colley, Sullivan and Associates. Paul, thank you so much for joining us. Hey, it's a pleasure. Okay, where did these numbers come from? How did you come up with this? Well, um, we're, we're experts in the real estate valuation business, and the base numbers are from uh, provincial sources. It's BC assessments data that's available publicly. So we, we, we went to that data and broke it up by region and then looked at some of the indices of, of percentage change over the past uh, year or two and uh, simply just uh, applied the percentages to the base data and 
and, and that's where, where the numbers come out. Um, what sort of isn't obvious from, from the data is how much equity ha- has been lost on a you know townhouse versus an apartment versus a single-family home. But obviously, the different price points drive different right. uh, dollar values and change. Right, because when you look at the city of Vancouver, you've got the average drop in equity at $150,000, but clearly some houses in some neighborhoods, it would be a much greater drop in equity than others. Oh, for sure. Like, I mean, we know uh, Vancouver homes are in that $3 million price point and a 10 or 12% drop is, is a lot more than 150000 bucks. Right. Okay. So it's just, are these paper losses, do you think, Paul, or are these losses that people are going to feel? Well, I mean, I think what's being lost in the message here is is what's happened to our markets and not only the short period, but also over a long period. And BC Real Estate Board has done a lot of analysis over the past 30 years, and the average value change in a home is 3.5% per annum when you adjust out for inflation. So, you know, people are, 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 are sort of, you know, your house has gone up 50 to 70% in value in the past five years. Suck it up and, and accept this 10 or 12% drop. But that's, that's a very narrow view of the situation. You know, people invest in their homes over a long period of time. That's the idea of a home. You hold it for 20, 30 years. You pay off your mortgage. You hopefully get that 3% gain because people are investing in their home as their future for their retirement, to help their kids, to help them uh, go into old people's homes. And, you know, yeah, the short-term gain's been great, but the long-term gain's only been 3.5% per year. Right, but when so people who bought though in the last three or four years are they still even going to see that three percent gain because that they bought at yeah. the height of a hyped market? No, that that's that's the big problem on the table. No, nobody seems to care about those people, and I think it's it's, it's kind of sad actually in our society. I mean, we've got thousands of people coming into our province from all around the world every year, and we have people moving into the markets. There are kids that are they're reaching into the home market, and they're getting hurt here. They're getting hurt big time. And, uh, you know, people are struggling to get a 5 or 10% down payment. And then they see a 10 to 20% wipeout in value in, in one or two years from taxation policies well, and, and other government policies, of course. Those people are underwater. That means they're at risk of, of, of losing their homes. That means they have no equity in their homes. And well, what are we doing? Well, you know, we're paying higher taxes. We're paying that to government. And we're, we, we, we are now behind uh, from where we started on buying our homes. Is there not there a lesson there for all of us too, though, is that the market did get so crazy that, as you say, there were people who were buying homes that, you know, maxed out on what they could afford? Yeah, well, um, a lesson learned. Well, you know, do you want to live in, in our society? Do you want to live in, in our province? Um, I'm I'm about moderation, and I don't like seeing government policies coming in and causing such a sweeping change in value and hurting people in a short period of time. So, um, a lesson learned is that these government policies were were, were very harsh on, on the market, and I'm not sure they targeted that everybody that they were intended to. Because, all, all, all in my view, what's happened is we've brought the higher end values down fairly significantly and the lower end values are are flat and in a lot of places they've actually gone up so in in, in many respects these, these taxation policies have had the opposite effect and they will have a significant opposite effect with regard to your property tax bill coming up because you'll see higher tax rates coming out with a lower overall lower average decline in value so the the lower end homes will have higher property taxes as a percentage change over the higher end homes people don't see these things coming yet your property tax bills coming this week and people's eyes will start opening up right now. 
It, it, but if you're all about moderation, then you said, how was the market supposed to moderate on its own? Because we had no signs of that happening. We needed supply. And, and this government came out and said, we are going to crush the demand. And so uh, that's only one side of the equation. They've crushed the demand. They've crushed the confidence in, in, in the market. New housing starts are down 30%. And we still have people coming to our province. We have people that want to buy homes. And if we, have, if we haven't done anything about the supply side of the equation, what's going to happen over the next couple of years here is we're going to have pent-up demand. We're not going to have homes for these people to buy. And we're going to see the next uptick in value. So, But, that would, the, but Paul, right the now, there's a lot of houses that are listed on the market. And what's not there is the demand. Like people are waiting for prices to come down more before they buy. So the demand is there and there's still a lot of supply. Well, well that's, that's exactly my point. The de- demand is, is, is on the sidelines. It, people are still coming. When, when price, price doesn't change or changes moderately and we, we, we're choking supply because there's no confidence to build right now, the number of projects being cancelled in this province right now is astounding. You're going to see prices go back up. If you don't supply the market, you're not going to fix the problem. Right, but what you're saying is there are a lot of people who are waiting because they don't want to pay the high prices, though. That's not a government thing. That's individual buyers who are saying, I'm not paying those prices. Yeah, and and it's a standoff, right? And uh, and, until somebody makes a move, the market is having this increasing pent-up demand. So the one way to solve it is to start supplying the market. Right, but clearly, are you saying then that we should have left things the way they were? I think you should have brought in some moderation. I think the target was to tax people through their homes that aren't paying income tax. You know, when Tom Davidoff from UBC designed these taxes for the provincial government, there was always meant to be an offset, an income tax offset to the additional taxes people were paying. That's moderation. That's saying, hey, you're paying your taxes here. We won't charge you the taxes over there. We, we were after the people that were enjoying the social services of our province and not paying income tax. Well, they chose to bring in only one side of the equation, which is but, taxing through real estate. So right, but Paul, let's that, be that, fair that here as well. You're, you're, not, you're not addressing the federal government's role in this and bringing in those mortgage tightening rules, which had a lot to do with what people could afford to buy and also had a huge impact on the market. Oh, hey, I absolutely, and that was clearly set out in the paper this morning, that that was one source uh, of price moderation because people couldn't reach up to the prices that they wanted to pay or the price point they were trying to get at. So I, I've been clear, there, there's more than one policy in, at play here, and that's part of the problem. You you have a federal government that brings in a tax policy, then you have a provincial government that brings in several new taxes all at once. That's not moderation, Right. Right. But I guess in the end here, what were they supposed to do? You had a lot of people who couldn't afford to get into the market. The market was becoming unsustainable. So were they just supposed to wait? Well, we, we, we didn't exactly wait when we immediately rolled out all these new taxes on real estate. We knew that the, the, the uh, federal policies were already having an effect, and we quickly brought in new taxes. So, you know, if you don't give the market a chance to react... Then, then you don't know what's going to happen. And I don't think bringing in multiple taxes at once is, is, is good policy. You know, they brought in property transfer tax. They took it up to 5%. They increased foreign buyers tax to 20%. They increased additional school tax, uh, tripling some people's property tax bills all at once. So A lot of those people don't have to worry about the school tax anymore, though, Paul, according to your own numbers, because their price has gone down and falling below that threshold. 
Well, yeah, that's for sure, isn't it? Yeah, but that's a, for sure. A, again, what, 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 what the people are missing the point on is when those high-value homes are coming down, there will be more tax collection coming out of the low-value homes. So there's this circle of, of tax distribution which occurs when you have changing values. Hmm. Paul, thank you very much for your time. Hey, it's a pleasure. That is Paul Sullivan, who's a property tax agent, senior partner with Burgess Colley Sullivan and Associates. They're the ones who've done this uh, analysis and research about how much equity has been lost in homes across the region. BC has a money laundering problem. This we know, and it's why we have launched a public inquiry into the whole situation. Uh, But one of the reports into money laundering that we heard about last week also pointed out that by using the same economic model other provinces, and in fact, the entire country seems to have a problem with money being laundered. But unlike BC, not every province and jurisdiction was willing to listen. Take Alberta. In fact, Alberta was cited in this report using the model from the Netherlands. It said that Alberta was also a target. The report estimated that $10 billion was laundered in Alberta in 2015 alone. But in Alberta, that province's Minister of Justice and their Solicitor General, well, he wasn't too happy about that. He said the conclusions were based on questionable data. His name is Doug Schweitzer. He said Alberta uses intelligence from frontline law enforcement agencies, not data that they can't verify. In other words, he didn't think it was that big of a problem because he said if the law enforcement people weren't telling him there was a problem, then he didn't think it was as big of a deal. Well, that's great. Except we know how that worked out here in BC, don't we? Leave it all to law enforcement doesn't necessarily root out the problem. Which is why we thought that we would go straight to the source of the economic model that is being debated here. And that is Dr. Bridget Unger from the School of Economics at Utrecht University in the Netherlands. It is her model that was used in Maureen Maloney's report to estimate the scale of money laundering. Just before we came on air today, I had a chance to talk to her in detail about this. And here's our conversation. Well, Dr. Unger, thank you for joining us to talk about this today. Lots of interest over here when it comes to money laundering. Can you tell me a bit about the modeling that you did? Yes, uh, I'm very happy to tell you about it. Uh, What we use in 15 years uh, to estimate money laundering is a world model, which we have built up, where you have basically 190 countries, and we look first how much crime money is in the world. So how much do you earn from drugs and from fraud? Knowing this number then, we try to look which countries attract this money laundering money. So part of it will be laundered at home, but part of it will be sent abroad. And the most attractive countries we found out, and that's also confirmed, I think, by many criminologists and also police findings, are rich countries. So launderers like rich countries, countries with a high gross domestic product, with a stable government, with reliable banking, with uh, some links to the countries, like speaking the same language or sharing the same cultural features, knowing a little bit about the country. And so we look for this world money, which country attracts how much And the same we did for Canada, how much is attracted by Canada. And the outcome is about 2%, uh, 2.1% of gross domestic product, which is a lower bound. There are countries which have 8% of gross domestic product, like Italy. So it's a a relatively modest amount, but still adds up to 41 or 47 billion of uh, Canadian dollars. And then we looked how much does each of the provinces attract of this money. 
And for this, again, we assume that the provinces behave like countries with borders and with different policies and with different uh, cross-domestic product and different people. And from this, we estimated then the Alberta and the British Columbia and Ontario and Prairies and Quebec and Atlantic uh, uh, money laundering. So, so it's a model, it's an economic model with assumptions uh, but economists work with assumptions. Also, when you calculate gross domestic product, you make assumptions of how much do people work on their own or how much, how big is the shadow economy. So with these assumptions, which we tested basically since the last 15 years for different countries, and uh, the model seems relatively robust because it's a gravity model which dates back to Newton, and it's a, it's a very solid model coming from physics in principle. In some of the provinces, Alberta in particular, has expressed a lot of skepticism about this being present in their economy. What do you say when you hear governments say that, oh, no, that, that number can't be right? I mean, it reminds me, you know, it's a deja vu, because 15 years ago, the same when I did for the Netherlands, the first reactions were exactly the same. So the Dutch said it's too high. Luxembourg said we are not on the top. That cannot be. And a couple of years later, uh, I think nobody in Europe would say that I have estimated too high. They would more say maybe it's even too low what you estimate. So in this sense, I can see if you've never were busy with money laundering and somebody, especially a foreigner, comes and says, oh, you, you are the number one in laundering, that if I were a government, I also would not like these findings. But I think it should be used as an eye-opener that this should be investigated in more depth. And it was especially the Albertan government, which was the only province which said it would not like to know who is the ultimate beneficial owner of a company. It said we don't participate in this uh, nationwide program. We don't want to know. So, And this means... You open your door to t telling launderers, come into our province, because we're not going to question for where you are from and what, what, where the money is from. And I think this is a sign that you are not really taking the problem serious enough, and I think it should be taken more serious, because uh, launderers will always look for a loophole, where can we go where we stay undetected? And if a country just opens its wide its doors, I think it's, it's very, very likely that uh, this amount is certainly not underestimating how is laundering. money how is money laundering so well hidden then how does it get so deeply into the economy of a country yeah, because it's done by very smart people. It's mostly white border crime. It's people who have lawyers, who have <laughs> helpers, they have tax experts, they have uh, notaries, they have a lot of very smart real estate agents, very smart helpers how to get the money into a country and how to hide it. And the only purpose for laundering is to hide the origin of the money, the criminal origin or the tax evasion more origin. And therefore, it's a very difficult crime to detect because it's done by very smart people. And yet, have you, using this same model then all over the world, have other countries responded and, and done something about it? Yeah, I mean, in the Netherlands, it was uh, an eye-opener, and the Netherlands has done a lot of reforms, especially regarding uh, their trust companies, that they want to know exactly who is the owner of this trust company. They have uh, changed their laws, their supervision laws, they have changed their reporting laws, and they have tightened a lot, and they have also, per year, 1,580 prosecutions for money laundering. If you compare it to Canada with 10 prosecutions, I think, in the last 10 years, it's uh, a very big difference. So uh, I think in Europe now, money laundering is uh, taken very serious. And uh, 
if America and Europe tighten their basically borders regarding money laundering, then Canada, I think, is a very attractive country for launderers, and therefore I would really highly recommend that other provinces follow what British Columbia is doing, namely to really seriously try to register uh, companies' land that you know who, to whom do these things belong. That's the most important thing in order to discover uh, drug dealers, fraudsters, or tax evasion people in your country. Doctor, would you see the model as a starting point then, like not a finishing point as in this is what's going on in your economy, but a place to start looking? Yes, I think that's what it is. You, you are in the dark, and it's the first light that you flash on. I don't pretend that I can tell on the center exactly what's, how much is really laundering, but I can point at the weak points, and I can show who are the most threatened provinces. And there I'm still convinced that my model is not wrong, because in the last 15 years it could point the finger on the right countries. The first, when I'm estimated, the first time Luxembourg popped up, and as I said, Luxembourg was very upset, that's not true. Then the Vatican popped up, the, the country of the, the, of the Catholic Pope, and then there was the Vatican scandal. So the model is a very simple one, but rich countries, which do not do anything against money laundering, are extremely threatened by attracting laundering money. And that's a very simple truth, I think. So what advice then would you give to places, other jurisdictions like Alberta, who say, no, no, this, these numbers are wrong? I think you cannot, uh, you have to cooperate and share information. Money laundering you cannot combat in one province or just by closing your eyes. I think the provinces have to work together, developing, registering of, of beneficial ownership of com companies and of land. They have to share information. They have to work together with the federal government. And the data cannot be just used in silos, each one sitting on his own data, the tax authorities sitting on their data, and the land registering sitting on their data. You have to basically find more cooperation in order to share these information and to detect unusual behavior. Also, the reporting has to improve. We saw in British Columbia that the real estate agents basically think if, if we don't accept cash, we are not laundering, helping laundering. But many launderers don't pay in cash. They come with very complicated company constructions into your country and then buy land or houses. And to detect this, you need much more awareness and also training of, of the people to report also suspicious transactions. Do you think BC is on the right track? I think BC is a very courageous track, and Lota, the land registering proposal that they make, is worldwide the most developed. Um, according to the Tax Justice Network, who compared all the, the all the land registering uh, in the world, so it's a very modern and I think a very courageous step to say we want to know how much money laundering is and we want to fight it. And that's basically what the Dutch did 15 years ago. They were the first country in Europe who started to say, okay, let's estimate this and let's look how we can really face this problem. I think it's courageous and I think it's a good way. Yeah, Dr. Unger, thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much, Jimmy. That's Dr. Bridget Unger, who's with Utrecht University School of Economics. It is her economic model that was used in Maureen Maloney's report to try to estimate how much money laundering was going on. And as you heard her say there, it's the beginning of a conversation about money laundering. And it's not the be-all, end-all, end result. It is a place for people to start asking questions.
You know, in the last few weeks, there has been a lot of talk about abortion in the news, and that's because of the United States. There have been several states like Alabama and Georgia that have signed into law some pretty tough restrictions on abortion, in effect of kind of banning it. They're setting up challenges to go to the United States Supreme Court to once again kind of relitigate Roe versus Wade from 1973. So much of that was in the news, though, kind of got us wondering about here in Canada. Like, sure, here we are reading the headlines out of the United States, but have we ever stopped to think about what access to abortion is like in this country? Now, abortions were decriminalized and allowed since 1988, so it's been more than 30 years. But despite that, in many parts of the country access to abortion services still remains difficult. So we wanted to find out more about this. So I had a chance to speak with Frederique Chabot. She's the Director of Health Promotion at Action Canada for Sexual Health and Rights. And here's what she told us. Now, Frederique, if if a woman goes to a doctor in Canada needing an abortion, does she face obstacles? Absolutely. I think people in Canada are still fooled by the fact that abortion was decriminalized almost 30 years ago at this point, thinking that it's easily accessible everywhere, but that's definitely not the case. So someone who needs an abortion at this point might have easier access if they're in an urban center like Toronto, Vancouver, or Montreal. But if we go outside of these centers, if we go in certain regions in the country, abortion care is not that easily accessible. And does it vary, I guess, also province by province? It absolutely does, yes. Although there's been the promise of medical abortion in terms of how we can address historical gaps in access, it's still very true that depending on which province you're in, access is different. So do women have to go to clinics or do they go to the hospital? Like, what do they do if they need help? It depends. Uh, We have found in a study in 2006, and it's still true today because we're still monitoring, that only one in six hospital in Canada offers abortion care. Uh, In certain regions, it's it's relegated to private clinics that specialize in in abortion care uh, only or women's clinic, uh, and in some areas, it's hospitals only. Now, is that, is that the way it is set out by the government? Like, are these publicly funded? Yes, it's publicly funded. So, so in Canada, to access an abortion, if you have a Medicare card, so health insurance from your province, a surgical abortion is covered. In terms of medical abortion, it's still uh, in the works. So almost all provinces at this point have insured universal cost coverage for the medical abortion pill, but there's still some holdout provinces where people have to pay out of pocket almost $400 for the medication. So places like Manitoba or Saskatchewan or in the territories, uh, Yukon, Nunavut, people have to pay out of pocket, and which is not accessible for all. So again, it really depends what you have in your bank account will dictate if you have access to this medical procedure. I understand. Is there also a waiting list in many areas? Uh, Yes. So uh, depending on what uh, services are available in different regions, if if there is a wait list for ultrasounds, if if some professionals require an ultrasound for the abortion procedure, it can create some wait lists that are concerning considering how timely this procedure is, so which is which is an issue for, for many people in many, in many cities, yes. So, Frederick, it must be very interesting for you then to see and hear all this discussion about the debate going on in the United States, but do we talk enough about this here in Canada? 
Well, it feels close to home because although we're not in the same situations where uh, the of two accesses at risk, there's been still very inequitable access to the medical procedure, which means um, that we still have a lot of work to do. And this is something that there's been very little political will to address. So, for example, in, in provinces like Quebec, abortion was included in primary care, which means that there was a deliberate decision that was made to ensure timely and easy access to the population compared with other regions where there's been barriers after barriers, wait lists, uh, policies and rules that have stood in the way of people accessing abortion when they need it, despite the fact that this is a very common procedure. So of everyone who can get pregnant, one in three will get an abortion in their lifetime. And this is certainly not the way we treat it in the country. Do you think it's also because like we're just uh, perhaps uncomfortable talking about it publicly? Absolutely. Abortion stigma is a huge piece of it. It's sometimes hard to pin when we're looking at the reasons why it's difficult to access in certain places, but it's basically a death by a thousand cuts in terms of not addressing really huge gaps. And the people who suffer the most are people who don't have a lot of money. So if you can't pay for travel, if, if you don't have abortion care available in your community, if you can't take time off work if you can't leave your children for a whole week to go to another city, if you can't pay for a hotel, if you can't pay for the medical abortion pill. You know, those are the people who are seeing the biggest barriers to their access. So this is certainly an issue, and it's been complicated with, you know, the election of many conservative governments who then attack sex ed, who look at the many rules and regulations that they could address, but they don't, you know, there's definitely, definitely abortion stigma at play in how this has played out in our country. Right. So political parties vow that they're not going to touch this issue as in they're not going to, you know, infringe upon the rights of it, but yet they're also not going to do more to make sure everybody has equal access. Yes. And that's absolutely correct. And that's one way that it can play out. And while there is no, necessarily plan at this point to touch or to create a law that would restrict access in Canada, because right now abortion is regulated by professional bodies. It's not regulated by a a law. Um, We still see, you know, events like the Saskatchewan health minister showing up at anti-choice rallies, promising that he will continue to fight from his standpoint to ensure, you know, that his views are realized, that his anti-choice agenda is realized. And Saskatchewan is one of the provinces that refuses to pay for medical abortion, regardless of the fact that there's only two points of access in the province and people who are outside of the major urban centers have to travel hundreds of kilometers to access care because of this decision. And yet, if they're refusing to pay for the procedure, are they allowed to do that? Um, What is happening in Saskatchewan is that Surgical abortion care is covered by the provincial insurance, but they uh, there's only two points of access in, in big cities. Everyone else who is not in those cities has to travel. And that would be, you know, we could remedy that if people could access the abortion pill, which can be prescribed by nurse practitioners, family doctors, in communities everywhere. So it's definitely a way to address that issue. But they are refusing to, to cover the cost. So it's a decision that has severe impacts on access, even though we don't have a law that restricts abortion access in Canada. 
So, Frederic, that when you see everybody kind of, you see all these stories in the news about what's happening down in the United States, what would you say to them about here in Canada? I would say that this is the time to stand firm. This is a time to take a stance and, and really address access issue in our country. We're seeing the impact of an anti-choice agenda rising in the United States. It could happen here. This is the time to rally together and really pledge that we will ensure that we have an equitable access to this important piece of the reproductive health package. Frederic, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. It's Frederic Chabot, the Director of Health Promotion at Action Canada for Sexual Health and Rights. Let's get you a little more information now on one of the top stories that we're dealing with today. And this has to do with the murder of Kieran Desi in Surrey. Uh, she was killed, found in a burned out car in August of 2017. And now for the second time in just a couple of weeks, there is an update on the case. We are going to go now to Global News Senior Reporter Janet Brown for more on this. Hi, Janet. Good afternoon, Simi. Uh, what a terribly sad story, and it's still unfolding and unraveling. As you say, it was nearly two years ago, it was August 2017, when Kieran Desi, only 19 years of age, her body was found in a burned-out vehicle in a, in a remote area of Surrey along 24th Avenue, uh, near 187th, not very far from the Langley and the U.S. border, in fact. Uh, for a long time, it went unsolved until last week when I hit and Surrey RCMP held a joint news conference to announce that her boyfriend was charged with second-degree murder, 21-year-old Harjit Dio. Then, today, another news conference to announce that Mr. Dio's mother has also been charged in connection with this death. 53-year-old Manjeet Dio charged with accessory after the fact to murder. Here is more information on this case from IHIT Corporal Frank Jang. IHIT is announcing a significant update to the Bad Karen Desi homicide investigation. Back on August 2nd, 2017, IHIT took conduct the homicide investigation of 19-year-old Bad Karen Desi after her body was discovered in a burnt vehicle in the 18,700 block of 24 Avenue in Surrey. On May 10th, 2019, 21-year-old Harjot Dio was arrested and charged with second-degree murder with respect to Beth Kieran's death. I can now tell you that a second individual has been charged in the same investigation. 53-year-old Manji Cordio has been charged with accessory after the fact to murder in the Beth Kieran Desi homicide investigation. Ms. Dio was arrested on May 17th and will make her next court appearance on May 23rd. Beth Karen's homicide investigation is still not over. Our investigators continue to actively pursue leads in the case. All right, so that is Frank Jang. So now, Janet, what are they looking for from the public? Like, what other information do they think they might find out there? Well, they strongly believe that, as Frank said, others have information on this case, and they're asking them to step up and, quote, do the right thing. They're still appealing for witnesses, people with any information to come forward. Uh, Frank also saying, Mr. Jang, uh, Corporal Jang, with I hit saying uh, he realizes this is going to shock the community, um, but he says there are more people out there that really knew what went on that night. There was some suggestion at the news conference that there were two vehicles found on that lonely stretch of road in Surrey uh, when Ms. Desi's body was found that night back in August of 2017. 
so clearly, the investigation continues, according to Mr. Jang. Uh, he, he's saying that the homicide investigation is not over yet, and he says there are indeed others out there who have information. So I wouldn't be surprised at all, Simi, huh. if uh, more charges are announced in future as, as the investigation continues. Uh, Mr. Jang also saying that he realizes it will be shocking for the community, family members, etc., that two members of the same family, yeah. the son and the mother, both charged in connection with this tragic, tragic death of this young lady who is very loved, of course, by her family, the community, and uh, schoolmates as well. Right. There's still lots of questions, aren't there, Janet, about the arrest of the boyfriend in this case, a 21-year-old Harjit Deo. Uh, was he not arrested uh, coming back from somewhere at the airport? Yes, we heard last week at the news conference that Mr. Dale was arrested at YVR. Um, and the next question was, well, where was he arriving yeah. from? Uh, we were told that he was arriving from somewhere else within Canada. But where that was, they wouldn't tell us. And I again asked Corporal Jang today, do you have any further information? Can you release that? Can you provide more information about where he was and how long was he away for when he arrived at YVR and when he was arrested. And again, Corporal Jang said he could not provide that information because it's all part of the information that's gone forward to Crown Council and will come out at trial. But that is a big question. Why was he away? Where was he away? And for how long was he away? Um, You know, still lots of unanswered questions in this. And and we also asked uh, Corporal Jang today how long... Uh, was the mother on the radar in, in terms of this investigation, the, the mother who was charged, and apparently fairly close to the beginning of this investigation. So why did it take so long to lay the charges against Mrs. Dio, too? We don't yeah. know. We don't have all those answers right now, Cindy. Have we heard anything from Kieran Desi's family in all of this, Janet? That was another question I put to Corporal Jung today. How are they feeling? Um, you know, they did hold a news conference soon after their daughter was found murdered. But, you know, he says they are still mourning their daughter. He says in spite of these charges being laid, of course, it doesn't bring her back. Um, it doesn't ease their pain and the suffering they're going through. But clearly they are happy uh, that charges have been laid. But we have not heard from her family as of yet. They have not come forward yet to speak to the media. Maybe that's what they will do once the investigation is totally wrapped up, Simi, but it's hard to say at this point in time. Okay, so the next, it sounds like the next court appearance for the mother in this case is coming up in a couple of days. Uh, Is that then what we have to wait for is these next court appearances to get more information? Yes, she will be appearing in court, uh, I believe, Surrey Provincial Court, May 23rd. So, but uh, it's just a first appearance and quite often. Those are very brief uh, appearances where it's just a formality and then they set another court date. So we're not really going to get any information at her first court appearance. So so we wait. We wait for more information to come out, Simi. That's all we can do for the time being. Still so many questions. Janet, thank you so much for that. Thank you, Simi. That is my pleasure. Janet Brown, Global News Senior Reporter with the very latest on this. And this is a big twist. Oh, that gas price situation has not gotten any better. It was like a dollar seventy-one per liter as I was driving to work, and I'm watching them like a hawk right now because I'm getting to the point where this week I'm going to have to fill up. Right, so I would really like to see them go down, as would so many people out there. Well, the provincial government just released their terms of reference that is going to set the stage for an investigation into high gas prices by the BC Utilities Commission. We wanted to know what those terms are. Is this going to help us get to the bottom of this situation? Well, Keith. 
Caldery joins us now, Global BC Legislative Bureau Chief. Hi, Keith. Hi, Timmy. What are they going to look at? Well, it's pretty broad-based. Uh, we're going to look at, uh, basically, as you say, it's an investigation why, and to explain to people why gas prices are what they are. So they're going to be looking at market factors uh, that affect wholesale and retail prices, uh, price fluctuations, which in the news release also refers to uh, uh, competition concerns such as price fixing and gouging, uh, explaining the difference in refining margins and why it costs uh, so, so different in B.C. and the rest of Canada and why it costs different prices in different parts of British Columbia, and finally reviewing the potential of regulatory measures that are used in other jurisdictions. So it's not an exercise necessarily to uh, reduce the price of gas. It's more an exercise to explain why the price of gas is what it is. But a couple of things jump out at me. One is taxation, which is a big part of our gas price, is off the table. That is not something that the Utilities Commission is being asked uh, to to examine. Right now, about 54 cents a litre comes uh, is charged through various taxes at the provincial and federal level. And also, there's a reminder that the Utilities Commission does have the power to compel witnesses to give testimony uh, under what's called the Administrative Tribunals Act. Uh, That gives the, the Commission the power to compel someone to give testimony or to produce documents. And if they defy that order, uh, then uh, the Utilities Commission would go to a court and have that enforced through a court order. And uh, again, the news release from the Premier's office uh, does note that it has uh, this power to, uh, in their words, compelling oil companies as witnesses to explain their prices. So that would be very interesting if they were to have a public hearing and you had a bunch of oil executives explaining why the price of gas is what it is. Now, what do you think, Keith, is the end game here? Like, is the end game, as you said, to explain to people why we are here with these prices? or is it to maybe look at different ways we could actually do something about this? I think it's more explaining things. John Horgan's been down this road before. Uh, he At first, he, he thought that the regulation just wasn't possible, that it had been explored in the past and it wasn't feasible or enforceable in British Columbia. But perhaps the Utilities Commission will come up with a different view when it comes to regulation. That's certainly possible. If it does find evidence of price fixing and gouging, that would presumably lead to some sort of... Uh, uh, regulatory measures or penalties that could indeed affect the price of gasoline. So those are two options that uh, could affect the price of gasoline. But it seems to me most of the terms of reference here is to explain what is, you know, a very complex subject. Uh, and you know, whether we get Dan McTeague to explain it or someone else, it, the first thing they say, it's complicated. And I think the Utilities Commission's task is to lay out in simple terms why we pay what we pay for the price of gas at the, at the pump and potentially look at two prescriptive measures. One is regulatory, and one is an investigation of any price gouging or or price fixing. Now, when is this supposed to be done? August 30th. So the Utilities Commission will have a busy summer ahead. Uh, Not a a long time frame here. I think the government clearly is feeling the heat here from from the public that, uh, you know, a lot of people in consumer situation tend to blame the government for things. And people are blaming the government in in some respect for this because the government's uh, hand reaches into your gas tank and takes a big bite out of it through taxation. So the Horgan government obviously feeling the the pressure to do something and uh, they hope uh, they get some answers over the summer. But again, I wouldn't suggest that this exercise is going to reduce in the price of gas going down anytime soon. 
Right. So then you view this mainly as a way for the government to say, hey, look, we are doing something. Well, I think if the Utilities Commission actually holds hearings and compels oil executives to testify and explain in clear terms for for the average motorist out there why they're paying what they're paying for the gas, uh, they'll see that it's not all the government's fault. There are other factors at play here. And that will help the government, I think, with people to explain to them that this is a multifaceted problem and it's not just one aspect that's uh, that's hurting prices so much. But it is interesting, uh, for as broad an inquiry and broad terms of reference that they are, the whole area, one big area of, of determining the price of gas is off the table, and that's taxation. Right. Is this a Metro Vancouver issue, do you think, mainly, Keith? Or oh, it's an issue over here. Is I it? mean, you, you pay more in your uh, TransLink tax than, than uh, we pay here. I think you're about 18 and a half cents. I think we're around... A little ten cents, I think, somewhere around there. So, it, I mean, certainly in Metro Vancouver, because of the TransLink tax, you pay more than elsewhere in the rest of the province. I think there's a slight transportation fee, similar fee in the Okanagan, right. certainly one here in the capital. Uh, but uh, I don't think the price of gas is nearly as problematic in other areas of the province. So this is this is largely a metro problem and also a capital city problem. And can you think of a time when the government has done something like this before? Like, do they often turn to BCUC for help for stuff like this? Well, I'm not sure about BCUC. The Clark government of the 90s did uh, take a look at why the price of gas was. Jack Weisgerber, I think, when oh, he was... Uh, that, yeah. yeah. he had his own kind of sort of investigation as well. Both times concluding there wasn't much anybody could do about it. So if this is indeed simply a, a, uh, a case of the market determining the price along with the lack of refined product coming into the uh, into Metro, uh, then that's it is what it is. It will be interesting as well whether the Utilities Commission uh, ever visits the notion of how to get more refined oil into Metro Vancouver. That ah. um, necessity would suddenly raise the whole pipeline issue. That's not mentioned in the terms of reference, but presumably if the commission determines that the price of gas is affected by a lack of supply, and that lack of su- supply can be rectified through more pipeline capacity, suddenly the whole pipeline debate can get yeah. dragged into this thing, and that'll make it interesting as well. But even on the list of the terms of reference, as you point out, it says examine, explain, explain, review, but there's no provide solution. No. And, uh, but, you know, the Utilities Commission is a quasi-independent body. It's, uh, it'll go where it wants to go. Uh, they they want to make sure they come out looking good here as well to produce a, a really good report and all-encompassing. They may have suggestions of, uh, of right. how to reduce the price of gas. Their hands are not tied here. Uh, just because something, again, isn't mentioned in the, uh, in the news release in the terms of reference presumably doesn't mean that the Utilities, Utilities Commission can't mm-hmm. suddenly go there. So they may, well, they may well look at taxes, even though they're not mentioned in the news release in the terms of reference. But if they determine that, well, one reason why your price of gas is X is because of this amount of taxes, uh, that presumably will be part of the final report. Again, it's due on uh, August 30th. Oh, so much to look forward to this summer. Keith, thank you. Okay, Timmy. That is Keith Baldry, Global BC Legislative Bureau Chief, talking about the terms of reference that the province has produced to get the BC Utilities Commission to investigate the high gas prices that we are seeing here in this province. Right now, though, we saw a story in the last 24 hours that caught our attention for sure. Uh, it was the story that said Google... Uh, was saying it's basic services, so running its essentially operating service on Huawei smartphones uh, was going to be stopped because the U.S. government was moving to curb that kind of work. Now, Google did kind of walk it back a little bit and say the basic services will still function, but... Uh, the Chinese tech giant does face the possible loss of other features and support. Now, that's pretty big because the Android operating system 
is huge for Huawei phones, obviously, in order to allow them to operate anywhere outside of China. So this kind of highlighted that growing damage to Huawei or the potential for this growing damage from what is going on in Washington. The company has said that until now, U.S. accusations that it is a security threat have had little impact on sales outside the United States, but this could really change things. So we wanted to learn more about it. So before we came on air today, I had a chance to speak with Roger Enner, who's the founder of Recon Analytics. He's a telecom analyst, and here's what he told us. Roger, thank you so much for joining us to talk about this today. What is this whole Huawei, Google thing all about? Like, What's actually happened here? Well, uh, the U.S. government uh, put Huawei on the entities list, which requires American companies to get a, a, a permit to uh, do business with uh, foreign countries. And uh, based on that entities list that was issued on, uh, on Thursday, Google announced Sunday that they would stop working with uh, with Huawei on new devices. On Monday, the U.S. government uh, announced that it would uh, give everybody a three-month reprieve, and uh, so we're back on again. Okay, so what does that mean for somebody who either has a Huawei phone or is thinking about getting a Huawei phone? So if you have a Huawei phone or you get one in the next uh, three months, uh, nothing will happen. Your uh, updates will come uh, as usual. Your Google apps will work. The App Store will continue to work. It's as if nothing happens. This only applies to new devices that come out after uh, the company is then officially on the entities list. Okay. How serious of a problem, though, is this then for Huawei to be targeted like this by the U.S.? Oh, it's massive. Um, a because it basically forces Huawei not to use Android anymore and not to use the Android Play Store anymore, and uh, instead Huawei would have to put its own uh, Chinese operating system on it with maybe the Chinese um, uh, App Store, which is a major obstacle for most people especially when they don't speak Jap- uh, Chinese. Yeah. And, um, uh, you know, I always say a smartphone without an app store is the paperweight. <laughs> but Huawei spent like a lot of money. They've invested a lot of time and money in trying to break into the North American market. Then this would seem like a big setback. Uh, it's a global setback because the Huawei, the Google Huawei ban is global. So it not only affects uh, consumers in Canada, it can, uh, affects consumers in Latin America, in Europe, Asia, uh, everywhere. It's a massive, massive setback. It's, uh, you know, inside the Department of Commerce uh, in Washington, they call it uh, the death penalty. Hmm. Can, can Huawei recover from this, do you think? I mean, even if they're allowed to continue selling, this kind of targeting kind of doesn't make them a very attractive choice for consumers. In, in the short run, it's very challenging. In the long run, it will incentivize uh, Huawei to become independent from American uh, suppliers and, and, and software. Now... Not only Google is affected by uh, such a 
being on the entities list, but a, a Facebook, a Twitter, every every other American application would be equally uh, targeted, and so that would make it make it very difficult for Huawei uh, to succeed because it would have to establish a third non-U.S. app ecosphere on the globe, and that's almost impossible to achieve. Is this then? Is this temporary? Do you think, like, a part of the trade dispute between the United States and China, or do you think Huawei better make some backup plans here? Uh, I think Huawei better make some backup plans here because we have to remember how it all started. Uh, it all started with significant security concerns uh, from the, by the U.S. government. And while you can walk back and compromise on on a trade dispute, uh, it's much more difficult uh, to uh, walk back once you play the uh, the national security card, because nobody wants to be seen to uh, compromise on national security. And once you walked it back, you can't go forward again very easily. Hmm. Okay. So then, when you look, because at- what is it? National security yeah. or not? Right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, I was wondering too. If the United States has gone this far, then how, how can Huawei ever escape kind of being targeted by the U.S. on this? Uh, very, very difficult because uh, the founder of, uh, uh, of of Huawei said they wouldn't accept the same level of oversight that CTE accepted as condition of being uh, removed from the entities list. And so that's at a stand, uh, we're at a standoff. Um, Does this also um, tell us, Roger, that like this is a really critical time for these big Chinese homegrown tech companies that thought they want, they wanted to compete on the worldwide market. Does this show that they are perhaps not where they wanted to be on that front? Well, we we live in an interconnected world, and uh, every country benefits by, you know, the old Adam Smith comparative advantage of nations, that countries specialize on what they're best in and then trade it to somebody else. Uh, So China relied on that, the U.S. relies on that. Uh, if trade breaks down in, in such a level, it forces you to uh, reinvent the wheel, wheel in every country. And that's highly inefficient and, and not very good. So, but Huawei may, may not have uh, another choice, or they need to look for uh, non-U.S. vendors. Now, that's much easier in hardware than it is in, in, the, um, in the app world. And in the operating system world, because de facto, there are only American operating systems that are successful on a global basis. Right. So then uh, clearly the United States found a way then to get to Huawei. If they couldn't get to them through the hardware, this way is potentially much more significant. Correct. Absolutely. Uh, the, the dependence on the Android operating system outside China uh, is absolutely critical and can not easily be overcome. Now, in China, Huawei is using its own operating system with its own app store, and because they're not allowed to use Google services there. So uh, there's clearly a way. Now, the big question is, will, will 
non-U.S., non-Chinese um, consumers take up the, the, the choices and the preferences of Chinese consumers uh, like they have of American consumers. All right, so there's this. Uh, there's a long way to go with this, right? It seems like we're still in the middle of it, wouldn't you say, Roger? Oh, we're in the beginning of this. This uh-huh. will go on for quite a while. All right. Uh, yeah. Okay, Roger. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. It's Roger Edner, founder of Recon Analytics. They are a telecom analysis uh, firm.